morning. My name is David. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. It's my privilege to bring you the word of God this morning. So we all love stories, uh, whether they're stories from uh, a book, TV show, favorite movie. If I was to go around the room here and just ask, what are your favorite stories? What are your fav- what's a favorite mo- uh, movie, favorite TV show? My guess is a good number of them would include a murder, right? <laughs> Somebody kills someone else out of revenge, jealousy, a fit of rage. So I have kids who are still in school, so during the school year we're real busy, you know, uh, doing all that school stuff, but when summer comes, we've been enjoying summer and we get to do some fun things. One of the fun things we have enjoyed this summer is a little bit of uh, Netflix binge watching of the program Monk. I don't know how many of you guys remember that. I think it's kind of an old show, but it's you know, new to me. So um, there's Monk. So if you bring up the picture, there's Ad- so on the left there's Adrian Monk. He's the quirky detective. Uh, he's kind of a neat freak, kind of an obsessive compulsive type, but he has this knack for solving murders. And then to his right, hiding in the back is Sharona, a sidekick. And uh, she's got a lot more common sense, uh, except when it comes to meeting the right man. Then she can't quite get that right. And then there's, uh, um, there's Stottlemyre there on the far, on the far right, and then uh, it's Detective, uh, Detective Disher. They're the police force, and they, uh, f- you know, they do their best, but they can't quite seem to solve any murder without Monk's help. So it's a great show. So what is it about the murder mystery that's so compelling? Why are we so drawn to this, st- this storyline in all of its variations? And why not like the shoplifting mystery or you know, the, the lying, cheating, and stealing uh, mystery? I think it's because we understand murder to be the ultimate crime. You can't get more serious than killing another human being. And it's usually a crime that is compelled by a lot of rage and passion. So, it makes, uh, so learning the motive makes for a really good plot, makes for great characters. So this is true of the Bible as well. The Bible is God's self-revelation to us. He chose to give us a book that is full of stories. If you put all the stories together, it makes one overarching story. And the center of that one overarching story is a murder. And it's a murder mystery. Jesus, the innocent, righteous son of God, is murdered. He's unjustly put to death by the Jews and the Romans on a cross. And the mystery is, how could this be? How could God the Son die as a mortal man? How could the Father allow it? Why, would, why did Jesus allow it? He could have stopped it. And what's the purpose of it? So maybe the reason we love a good murder mystery is that God himself loves the same kind of story and invites us to unravel the plot and figure it out. So we've been marching through the Ten Commandments this summer, and today we're on the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. It's just four simple words. Uh, We read it in the ESV this morning, you shall not murder. You may have seen the footnote uh, in there. If you go jump to the bottom of the page, it says the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. And most other translations, the NIV, the NASB, uh, New King James, they they read the same way, you shall not murder. The King James, which is a a 400-year-old translation, uh, reads a little bit differently. It says thou shalt not kill But even if you're not a Hebrew scholar, it's pretty clear from the context of the first five books of Moses that there is such a thing as just killing, like the death penalty or a just war. So most modern English Bibles translate it, you shall not murder, which speaks of any unjust killing uh, of another human being. So to look at this more deeply, 
and, how, and specifically how Jesus fulfills and transforms the commandment, I'd like to take us through the following outline. There's four points. The first, we're going to look at the basis of the command. The second, the impact of the command in our society. Then we're going to look at what Jesus has to say, the elevation of the command. And then finally, we'll close by looking at the keeping of the command. How do we as followers of Jesus obey him? <clears throat> so, first, the basis of the command. If you start at the beginning of the story of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying the first commandment ever given, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, that, through that disobedience, sin entered the world, and Adam and Eve were cut off from God, and their natures became corrupt. And if you keep reading, in the very next chapter, chapter 4, Adam and Eve have children, and their son... Cain murders his brother Abel. So this is the second sin recorded in the Bible. And like most stories of murder, there is jealousy, there's anger, there's hatred. Keep reading, you get to Genesis chapter six, and now it's the time of Noah. And God sees that the world is full of wickedness and violence. So he wipes out all of humanity with a worldwide flood and saves Noah and his family through the ark. And after Noah comes out, God blesses him and entrusts the earth to his care, to his dominion, and then he gives them this command. We read it here in Genesis chapter nine. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So here we have the command to not murder and, it's, and in it, God references back to Genesis chapter 1 when he said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is the basis or the foundation for the command. Murder's forbidden because man, both male and female, is made in the image of God. So what is the image of God? You can try to define it by its characteristics. Uh, as people, we're able, we have the gift of language, we have reasoning skills, we have a moral sense, all these things, they set us apart from the animals, the rest of God's creation. They're things we share in common with God. But the Bible doesn't give us a technical definition. Uh, so uh, we, if we don't know exactly what the image of God is, we know exactly where the image of God is. It's an essential part of human nature. Every person is made in the image of God. When you see a human being, you see something of God because God puts something of himself in each person. And because God puts something of himself in each person, we have no right to wipe out that image. We treat each person with reverence and respect because we owe God our reverence and respect. So how about the impact of this command? Both the impact of the, the command itself as well as the basis in the image of God has had a huge impact on our society. In our Western society, it's part of what we call Judeo-Christian morality. It's built on this bedrock truth from the Bible. Man has intrinsic dignity, intrinsic worth, because he's made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you profess, uh, whether you're rich, healthy, intelligent, or you're none of these things. When you look at any human being, and that includes the born and the unborn, we see the image of God. And we see this, this uh, doctrine, the doctrine of the image of God, even in our country's uh, founding documents of our country in the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson wrote 
uh, this and our founding fathers signed it in in 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So you can see Jefferson's reasoning here. It's it's this tight logic that we have unalienable rights and that God's endowed them to us because we're created by him. So it's the image of God in us that gives us these rights. And And so therefore, man or government is unable to take them away because God gave them. And notice the first right that Jefferson gives. It's the right to life, which is the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And this reasoning comes directly from the Bible. And we Americans, we've enjoyed this, right? We've enjoyed the blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because of this uh, Christian tradition. And in contrast, if you start saying, well, look, we're not created, or maybe uh, we're not sure if there's a creator, there's no obvious need for a creator, you can see how Jefferson's reasoning unravels, which means we eventually lose the idea of human rights and the idea of human dignity. So another facet of this Judeo-Christian tradition that we have enjoyed is religious toleration or freedom of religion. It's in our first, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution. It arises from this same conviction of the dignity of man. In a civil society, each person has the right to worship God as his God-given conscience dictates. Even if we disagree with people, we respect that right. Now, a difficulty here is that the uh, freedom of religion is often confused with another idea, which is a very different idea, uh, religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is a worldview that teaches at the at bottom, if you, re, you know, reduce everything down, all religions are essentially the same because they're all getting at the same thing. They teach us how to be good people, how to respect others and live together. And if you were to ask someone, you know, uh, defend uh, your, this religious pluralistic idea, probably one of the first pieces of evidence they would give you is the sixth commandment, right? You should not murder, and then you'll find this everywhere in all religions. So to work through this, uh, this idea and this challenge and how it relates directly to the sixth commandment, I'd like to take a look at a bumper sticker. We have seen this, we've all seen this flying by on the I-5, right? Uh, coexist. All right, so it's each letter, so we've got seven letters there, each one is a symbol of a different uh, uh, religion or worldview. And I went to, uh, I went to the, the website that, you know, that uh, publishes this, peacemonger.org, so I can get the author's intent, what these letters mean. What did they mean when they put this together? So I think it's important to work through something like this. In a sanctuary this size, or if you're listening online, there's someone here that doesn't believe in Christianity or is you know, seriously rethinking things. And if you're one of these people, this argument of religious pluralism has got to weigh heavily on your mind. So I wanna uh, work through what each religion has to say, and it's gonna have to be, uh, it's gonna have to be quick. We have to buzz through these. If you want uh, an exact quote or a question on it, please come up afterwards. So let's go through it here. The first letter is the letter C. So this is a crescent moon, it's the symbol of Islam. And in Islam, the, their great prophet is the prophet Muhammad, and he wrote the Quran. And in Surah 25, uh, it's called the Criteria. I have three verses here uh, from, uh, from the Quran. It says, Muhammad says, And those who do not implore, besides God, any other God, and do not kill the soul, which God has made sacred, sacred, except in the pursuit of justice, and do not commit adultery, whoever does that will face penalties. The punishment will be doubled for him on the day of resurrection, and he will dwell therein in humiliation forever. 
except for those who repent and believe and do good deeds. These, God will replace their bad deeds with good deeds. God is ever forgiving and merciful. So Muhammad forbids murder. He basically does it by repeating the Ten Commandments, right? He repeats some of them. Next letter is O. So here we have the peace symbol. So this represents the peace movement or pacifism. And I think there's no better representative of this than uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who is uh, considered the father of the Indian nation, the modern Indian nation. He said, I do not regard killing or assassination or terrorism as good in any circumstances whatsoever. So again, this would prohibit murder. It's, uh, he, takes, uh, he would take like the King James and take him with a more literal reading of no killing whatsoever. But still, we get a reiteration of the same idea. Next letter is E. Okay, so we got the male and female symbol put together here. And this represents gender equality and the gay rights movement. Our former president, uh, President Obama, said the following in a speech to the United Nations in 2001. No country should deny people their rights because of who they love. I think we've probably heard this or variations of it. Whatever your position on homosexuality, and it's a super contentious issue right now, we agree that every person, regardless of what they claim to be their sexual orientation, should be treated with dignity and respect because he or she is made in the image of God. So even here on the sixth commandment, we can find agreement. Okay, the next letter is X. Of course, this is the star of David, and this represents Judaism, and the spokesperson for Judaism would be Moses, right? We've already heard from him. You shall not murder. So I'll move on. I. Okay, on the top of the I, you can, it's small, but that is a little pentagram there. So this represents paganism or Wicca, modern uh, witchcraft. So um, it's, uh, you know, this is pluralism, right? It's like a lot of stuff in here. Uh, Paganism isn't known for sacred texts and you know, literary traditions. You're not going to find like a holy book to quote from. But I went to wicca.com. Uh, they have, uh, there, is a, there is a traditional poem called the Wiccan Reed, R-E-D-E, and it ends. like it's cli The climax of this poem says, And ye harm none, do what ye will. You know, to kind of translate it a bit, if, as long as you don't harm anyone, do whatever you want. So this is this a moral statement that, again, would affirm the Sixth Commandment to not murder. Taking someone's life would certainly violate this. Let's keep pressing on to the letter S. So this is the yin and the yang symbol. It represents uh, Eastern philosophy, Taoism, and uh, I'm no expert on Eastern philosophy, but when I, when I think of Eastern philosophy, I turn to the Tao Te Ching. It's a, a very old document. It's written by Lao Tzu in uh, 6th century B.C., Chapter 31, this is what he says. Weapons are instruments of fear. They are not a wise man's tools. He uses them only when he has no choice. Peace and quiet are dear to his heart, and victory no cause for rejoicing. If you rejoice in victory, then you delight in killing. If you delight in killing, you cannot fulfill yourself. So it is a, it's a prohibition against murder. It's a bit of a softer form. Basically, the wise man avoids it. Uh, uh, if he can. We've made it to the last letter. T, which is Christianity. So now, it's finally Jesus' turn. What does Jesus have to say about murder? Certainly Jesus, can, he can agree on this basic principle. It's something so common to humanity and to the religions of the world. So now we have, uh, in the sanctuary here, there's a, you, many of you are, experts in the Bible. We have read the Bible backwards and forward. Praise God, right? You know the Bible. 
Think in your head, what does Jesus have to say about murder? What is Jesus, what are some specific passages? So if you think about it a little bit, Jesus does mention murder. He mentions it several times, but mainly just listing it out as part of, you know, re- uh, repeating the, uh, the Ten Commandments or some of the Ten Commandments. There's really one main passage, and it's one that uh, has come up multiple times, even in Pastor Tim's prayer, Rick has mentioned it. It's from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to spend some time looking at this. And that brings us to our third point this morning, the elevation of the command, what we're going to hear from Jesus. So we started by looking at the basis of the command, the image of God. We looked at the impact of the command in our society. And now we want to look at what Jesus says and what we see is a radical elevation of the command. Let's take a look at it right now. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the first thing that jumps out to me is that I I don't see how this blends in with the other letters. I think the T is kind of sticking out. Uh... Jesus isn't just another voice in the chorus of religious leaders. Uh, he's not repeating this. He's not uh, reiterating Judeo-Christian morality. He's not giving a human stand. This is what's necessary for a civil society. Instead, he's giving a divine standard of what's necessary to stand before a holy God. And look at the penalties that Jesus is talking about. It's far greater than breaking the old covenant. Moses said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. It's simple justice. The punishment is equal and opposite to the offense. But Jesus' commands and the penalties are orders of magnitude greater. If you hate your brother, are angry with him, or even call him a fool, you're incurring a penalty of eternal divine wrath. So this is, whenever you encounter, uh, encounter a radical teaching, a radical teacher, there's a, something that kind of at the surface strikes you as grossly unfair. There's a few ways you can deal with it. One is you can reject it and say, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But no, not many people like to reject Jesus. This is not a popular option. Most people want Jesus on their side. So a more popular option is to reinterpret it and say, well, this is what Jesus, he didn't, he's using hyperbole. Uh, it's an intentional exaggeration. He's using words in a way that his hearers would understand. He doesn't actually mean uh, exactly what he says or literally what he says. But I think a more honest and helpful way uh, to approach this is to allow Jesus to be the teacher, to listen with humility and consider that his teaching may seem radical only because we have a radical ignorance of reality. So even if you don't believe uh, in Jesus or you're not convinced by this, I think this is the way to approach the text with integrity. So what's Jesus saying in this passage? I'd like to make three basic points. The first is that Jesus is concerned about more than justice in this world. He's talking about eternal consequences to our action. What what we do in this world matters for eternity because, uh, because eternity is at stake for each and every person. We're all created by a righteous and holy God made in his image, and the standard of righteousness is not based on our abilities right now, but based on God's own unchanging character. 
Our thoughts and attitudes and actions should be like God, and any perversion of that is something that mars the image of God in us. And so the the punishment or the violation, the, the punishment for violating his law is incredibly weighty, it's serious, because of the weightiness and the seriousness of who God is. That's the standard. The second thing is that Jesus is announcing a historical change in how God relates to his people. He starts off, you have heard that it was said, which is referring to the old covenant, to the law that Moses gave on Mount Sinai. But now something new and better is being announced. John writes, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the words, but I say to you, is Jesus' announcement of the promised new covenant. It's the arrival of the kingdom of God and Jesus is the king. And it's the arrival of a new and better law and Jesus is the new and better lawgiver. The writer of Hebrews says that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Christ is faithful in God's house as a son. So Jesus is greater than Moses. The old covenant was meant to be temporary, put in place for the nation of Israel as a guardian until the fullness of time came. But the promised Messiah has arrived and he has a law-giving authority that is greater than Moses. We need to listen to him. And the third thing is that Jesus fulfills and transforms the Ten Commandments. So the Mosaic law is not being abolished in the sense that it's not rejected or found to be invalid or wrong, but it's being fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the sense that Jesus keeps the law perfectly himself, but also in the sense that Jesus transforms the commandments into a new and more perfect form and one that was intended from the beginning. In Hebrews it says, the law of the old covenant was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So what is this new law that Jesus gives us? The old covenant prohibited murder. Jesus commands us to not even hate or be angry with our brother. The sixth commandment demanded obedience to an external standard. It curbed the effects of sin in society. Jesus demands a heart attitude of love for our brother. And and the commandment to love is really the positive way of saying to not hate your brother. And so Jesus is teaching us that love is the fulfillment of the law. I want to look at a few verses that show this. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is a quote from Deuteronomy. So it's part of the Mosaic law. Even in the Old Covenant, there was a requirement to love God and to love your neighbor. But Jesus elevates it by making it the greatest and the essential commandment. Let's look at another one. When Jesus meets the rich young man, I think you know the story. Uh, this rich man, young man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? What do I have to, what, tell me what the requirements are. Jesus gives him this answer in Mark 10. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
Jesus exposes the self-confidence and pride of this young man by elevating the requirements of the law. The rich young man thought he had all of the Ten Commandments buttoned down. He had it covered. But Jesus exposes the state of his heart by giving him a new requirement. He loved his money more than God. And when he was pressed to make a choice, to stick with his money or to follow Christ, he stuck with the money. So is it really required to give away all your wealth in order to have treasure in heaven? In one sense, no. Jesus isn't adding a new external requirement. Here's a new checkbox. Do this and you can get into heaven. You've earned it. But in another sense, we have to say yes. Jesus' words are clear. For where this man was at, this is what he needed to do. And Jesus is speaking the same heart requirement to us. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The new covenant that Jesus announces has a new law which aims directly at the attitudes of our heart. Following Jesus means leaving behind all the treasures of this world and seeking God as our only true and lasting treasure. So the requirement of selling all your possessions and giving to the poor is really the the same thing as the requirement to love God more than all your worldly, worldly possessions and to love the poor man who benefits from your love for God. The Apostle John reiterates the same standard of love as the essential characteristic of God's people. It says this in 1 John chapter three. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So John goes back to the beginning of the story just like we did, to Genesis chapter four. And the defining characteristic of our corrupt nature is a hateful, murderous heart. And we have the same heart as Cain. That's who we are apart from Christ. But for those who know God, who've been forgiven, for those who have passed from death to life, the essential character, the defining characteristic is love for brothers. So now if Jesus is calling us to this higher standard of love, What does this love look like? So I'd like to look at how we keep the command. And to do this, I want to look at some uh, some more practical context that we can apply to our life as we think about keeping this, keeping the command that uh, Jesus has given us. So in the Old Covenant, God called Israel out of Egypt, gave them his law, and created a holy people that were for his treasured possession. In the New Covenant, God God also calls out his people, his church, from all the nations of the world and commands them to follow him and to be like Jesus. Jesus himself is the standard of righteousness. So if we want to know what it means to love, we have to look at Jesus. We have to learn it from Christ. Jesus even said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So what what does the love of Jesus look like? So before we define it positively, here's a couple, uh, a few things that it's not. Um, there are some times when Jesus used, he was soft-spoken, he used meek and mild words. There's other times where Jesus had very strong and confrontive words. So the essence of Jesus' love is not in his tone or in his manner of speaking. 
Jesus also had close friendships in his early life, in his earthly life. Uh, he had 12 apostles. He spent a lot of time with them. And of those, three were especially close. John was the apostle that was dearly loved by Jesus. But the plot of the gospels, the storyline, moves towards his disciples and those, his friends being scattered. And actually, those friendships falling apart. So preserving close friendships was also not the essence of what Jesus' love is. I'd like to offer that the essence of Jesus' love is self-sacrifice. Giving up your own comfort, giving up your own needs, even your own life, for the good of others. A moment ago, I, I read a bit from John 15, 12. Let's read it again, but this time read a little uh, further into the context. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Self-sacrifice is the standard. This is what Jesus' love looks like. Paul says the exact same thing in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, giving yourself up, laying down your life for the good of others. It's the essence of Jesus' love and he calls us to be like him. And it's the opposite of a murderous, hateful heart. Instead of seeking my own good at others' expense, I seek others' good at my expense. So I'd like to flush this out in three practical contexts um, as we look in, in our, consider in our lives, what, how do we love those around us? First, what does love look like for those that are closest to us, for those that we love already? How do we love them as Jesus is telling us to love? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, later on in the chapter, Paul gives this command to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So we see the same thing. The love of Christ is our standard and the essence of that love is self-sacrifice. Christ gave himself up for the church and men, husbands, should give their, themselves up for their wives. But take a look at the, if you look at the, the uh, there's a curious thing in the logic of the passage that is easy to miss. Paul's reasoning. He, said, he says Christ gives himself up for his church that he might sanctify her. To cleanse and sanctify his bride so that she will be splendid and beautiful. And the reason we have to look closely is that the world tells us the exact opposite. The world says, I love you because you are beautiful. Jesus says to his church, you will be beautiful because I love you. My self-giving, self-sacrificing love is going to transform you and make you splendidly beautiful. And men, this is how we ought to love our wives, to think of what she needs, to give ourselves up for her good, and then we find our delight in her as she becomes more beautiful day by day. And this is a picture of how God loves us. And the command to love also applies to wives. So wives are to love their husbands, just as all Christians are commanded to love. But how a wife will love her husband is going to look different because God has called men and women to different roles, different and complementary roles in marriage. In the same Ephesians passage, just a couple verses earlier, Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands. So when you submit to someone, you submit to their leadership. But what if your husband isn't all that much of a spiritual leader? So 
we men are, we're kind of, we're kind of a, a, quite a bunch here. I mean, this is, this is true of me too. Uh, uh, it's certainly true that uh, it's, it's true that my wife has, a, the, it, I'm speaking of myself here, so now I'm lost for words. My wife has the best understanding. I have my faults. My wife knows my faults deeper and better than anyone else that I will ever meet. She knows what I need. And God has given her as a helper to me. If I have any chance of overcoming my faults, it will be because God will bless me through her help. And so wives, by your self-sacrifice as wives, you help make your husband more respectable, both to you and to others. Here's an, uh, one example from scripture, from 1 Peter. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So if sacrificial love can transform the unbelieving husband, it can surely help the believing husband who's struggling to be the spiritual leader that he needs to be. And I focused on husbands and wives, but this really applies to all believers, regardless of your marital state. We're all part of the family of God, and we're called to love each other and to seek the interests of others and give up, on our, give up our own self-interest just as Christ did. But what about those that are not in our families and not in the family of God? Jesus' example of self-sacrificing love extends to those more distant from us. From, uh, it extends to even those who are strangers to us or those who are unlike us. And I think a good example of this is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story well. There's a man, he's beaten, left for dead on the side of the road, and two religious Jews pass by. There's the priest and the Levite, but they don't help him, right? They walk by far on the other side because they're more concerned about keeping the ceremonial law and not uh, defiling themselves. But then, uh, then a Samaritan comes by and he loves the man and he helps him. And the Samaritans were despised foreigners, separated from the Jews for hundreds of years, yet the Samaritan willingly pays for this man's care. Jesus teaches us that sacrificial love extends to those who are unlike us it crosses over hundreds of years of racial and ethnic hatred and sees the needs of individuals created in the image of God. Now, if you spend any time watching uh, Fox News, MSNBC, cable news, you see our modern world has no answers to generational hatred, racism, racism hard-edged nas uh, nationalism. It's just one side screaming at the other, going nowhere. So what if at the next time you're having a conversation at work, maybe at the water cooler, and you're talking uh, with, uh, with a coworker about some of these hot button political issues, what if you remember Jesus' standard of self-sacrificing love? I'm not suggesting this is gonna determine what your policy position is, that's complex. But I think it will influence how you talk to your coworker, even if it's somebody that's on the other side of the aisle from you. Jesus went to the other side of the aisle. He loved sacrificially, just like the Good Samaritan, and we should do the same. One more example. We've seen how Jesus teaches us and commands us to love those who are close to us, to love those who are distant from us and unlike us. But our third example really stretches us. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Not just those who are unlike us, or are strangers to us, but those who actively hate us and are trying to destroy us. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, just a little bit, little bit later in the sermon, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you see how Jesus transforms the law? The Ten Ten Commandments tells us, do not murder. Jesus tells us to love those who would murder us. To the world, this is plain absurdity, but to God, this is the plan of salvation. We can learn from the martyrs of the church what this type of love looks like. Someday we may have firsthand experience of this. Peter tells us to not be surprised, but we should rejoice insofar as we share Christ's suffering. So Jesus calls us to fulfill the law by loving like he loved. So as we close, let's think again about the idea of the murder mystery. At the center of of God's story, there's a murder. Jesus, the innocent son of God, unjustly killed by sinful man. But what does it mean? How could it have happened? Then we see the same Jesus setting a standard of love that is orders of magnitude greater than what Moses commanded and also greater than any other religious leader in the world. And then we see Jesus himself showing us what this radical self-sacrificing love looks like. He gives himself up to make his ragtag church splendidly beautiful, to make peace between historic enemies, and to win even those who would kill him. And then he calls us to do the same. But it's incredibly hard. In fact, it's impossible. And therein lies the next mystery. How in the world are we going to keep Jesus' command? And the solution to this mystery is called the gospel. The good news is that Jesus gave himself up for us. He was hated and murdered in order to redeem our hateful and murderous hearts. We're only able to love because God first loved us. And God doesn't call us to muster up a love that we don't have. Instead, he pours out his love into our hearts and causes it to overflow into the lives of others. So our sight lines are clear. We look to Jesus. We keep looking to him. From the, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith begins by looking at Jesus and it ends by looking at him. We see Jesus' great love for us and when we respond in faith, his love transforms us. He does command us to love and it's a high and serious command but he also promises to make us able to love by his spirit working in our hearts. Let me close with this from 1 John chapter 4. This is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are deeply grateful for, the, for how you have loved us so fully and perfectly in Jesus. We hear his words, his, exa- his commands, his example, and we realize this is right, but we do not have the ability in ourselves. We need you to abide in us and to perfect your love in us, and we ask that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.